Welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, November 2nd. I'm Julie Hersey with these stories. The Petersburg Parks and Recreation Board voted to support a proposed bicycle park in Petersburg. The parks would have jumps and berms as part of a circular clay and gravel track so kids and adults can do tricks on their bikes. It would just be for pedal-powered bikes. The proposed location is across from Sandy Beach Park on a sliver of land near the intersection of Haugen Drive and Sandy Beach Road. The land is already designated by the borough for recreation purposes, but the project is not yet approved by the borough assembly. Stephanie Payne is director of Petersburg Parks and Rec. I think another good reason why this makes such a perfect parcel is that we already have parking built in down there at Sandy Beach. We have the restrooms during the summertime that are open and available for use and really just not very far away. We have the park already over there. It just kind of makes sense for it to be there. The organizers need a space about 100 yards wide by 300 yards long. It would be built with volunteer labor. Sig Burrell owns Rock and Road Construction, and he plans to donate company labor. Pat Blair also helping organize the project. He runs the Wheelhouse Bike Mechanic Shop in Petersburg. Payne says the project is possible because of all this volunteer labor. We are able to do this, I will say right off the bat, with and solely, truly because of Rock and Road and Pat and Sig. Um, there's no way I could put the money into this project when we have so many things going on and other issues that have just come up. So thanks to them for even making this possible. They hope to work on the park over the winter so that Burrell can donate labor when he has few other projects scheduled. Parks and Rec plans to get more help by throwing community work parties. Burrell says they want the park to be usable by June, but it might need to be built in stages. We might get a section, you know, try to get a small section done and then we get something rideable and then start building, keep building, you know. I mean, that's that's why I foresee this happening. It's like we'll get a s- section done and then we can just loop it around and then we can go add another section and just whatever we can do. Payne is still researching insurance and legal issues. She's drafting a resolution to present to the Petersburg Borough Assembly this month. For now, they will begin clearing brush and checking out the terrain. Slot machines, like most kinds of gambling, are not legal in Alaska, but in the Prince of Wales Island community of Klawak, the local tribe is now running more than 20 machines that look an awful lot, like the kind of slots you might find on the floor of a Las Vegas casino. And it's all perfectly legal. Regan Miller has the story. Rhonda Wren drove from Craig to Klawak two days in a row to play the machines at the Klawak Casino. I had lots of luck yesterday. I did great. <laughs> Nearby, Robert Baza was coming away from his machine with $300. He had heard that the Klawak Cooperative Association opened at the casino early last month and wanted to try it out. Pretty good. It's paying off. Gaming isn't new to Klawak. Before COVID-19 came to the island, the tribe hosted regular bingo games and pool tabs. But now, they've added more than 20 bingo machines to the casino, which share space with the tribe's mini-mart and smoke shop in the heart of town. The machines look nearly identical to slot machines, but technically, they're electronic bingo machines. And in most places in Alaska, they're illegal under state law, even under an exception that allows nonprofits to run raffles and bingo games. But here in Klawak, there's a twist. The casino sits on land held by the federal government in a trust. It predates the landmark Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, 
Lloyd Miller is an attorney with the firm Sinoski Chambers, based in Anchorage. I mean, this is land held in trust for the benefit of the tribe. The tribe's operation is legal under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. The law provides a framework for what kinds of gaming is legal in areas defined as Indian country. Miller says that's what makes it different from a recent case with some striking similarities. In 2018, the native village of Iklutna tried to open a similar slot-like electronic bingo hall in Chukiak, but they were shot down by state authorities and a federal court. Miller's firm was involved in that case. It's a little complicated, but Miller says it all comes down to land. The key problem? Iklutna wanted to open the casino on a native allotment, land that belonged to tribal members, not the tribe itself. And when it, when you're talking about an allotment instead of trust land, you you then get into a secondary question about uh, that that asks whether the tribe has jurisdiction, territorial jurisdiction over the allotment. And to qualify, the land needs to be under full jurisdiction of the tribe. Allotment awarded to an uh, individual as a former chief. I mean, this goes way back in time. It was not a parcel of land taken into trust for the tribe, for the benefit of the tribe, and held in trust for the benefit of the tribe. That's a big difference. But Kloak does have jurisdiction over the casino parcel. The tribe also has the appropriate Class II license from the National Indian Gaming Commission to go with it. A Class II license covers things like pull tabs and bingo, including the slot-style electronic machines. It's a step behind a Class III license that would allow for Vegas-style games with big jackpots. That's why, equipped with the right kind of land and the right kind of license, Cloak's Casino is in business. Miller says there are other small parcels of trust land like Cloak's, like in Angoon. Back at the casino, tribal administrator Lawrence Armour says revenue from the casino helps the federally recognized tribe support its members and the community. Um, just starting another enterprise. I mean, this, the, the smoke shop is what we pay a lot of our uh, tribal employee salaries with if they're not covered by a grant. And uh, we just needed another revenue source. So it was just one of the ideas that um, we started discussing, and the opportunity kind of fell on our laps. Armour says he's seen Kluwak residents come to test their luck, but also plenty of unfamiliar faces, too. Kluwak's casino is the only one on Prince of Wales Island. But Armour says that may not be for long. I think there are some tribes that were looking into it, so we were really trying to keep it under wraps as far as progress and who our contacts were to try to get this thing uh, off and beat them to the punch, basically. Armour says business has been steady. He says he thinks the machines will usher in a new interest in tribal gaming and even push out old standbys like pull tabs. Reporting in Clock, I'm Reagan Miller. A small college in Sitka has announced it will be opening its doors to its first freshman class in the fall of 2024. Outer Coast has been offering programs for high school students and high school grads in recent years, but now it's poised to begin awarding Associate of Arts degrees. Robert Woolsey has this report. Outer Coast offered its first summer sessions for high school students beginning in 2018. Two years later, it opened a nine-month gap year program for recent high school graduates. Operating in the pandemic proved to be a problem for many higher education institutions, but Outer Coast moved forward in person with an intensive alternative to traditional college. Matthew Spellberg, Outer Coast Dean, says the transition to a two-year degree program is going to stay this course. When we create the two-year college, what it's going to look like is a similar focus on students who are looking for something different from higher education and who maybe have felt that 
uh, higher education as it conventionally exists has failed them or their communities or their families. Spellberg has a Ph.D. in comparative literature from Princeton and co-founded the Native Cultures of the Americas seminar at Harvard. He is courting faculty from around the country who are interested in place-based education and who can help rewrite how a Western liberal arts education can incorporate traditional indigenous ways of knowing. And working to find a way for those two traditions, which have historically often been at odds with each other, and again have generated a lot of sometimes ill will and alienation in certain communities, can actually meet each other. So we can be a kind of bridge between the classic college experience and something really different. Outer Coast was conceived in 2014 by a group of individuals, including Sitka representative Jonathan Christ Tompkins who saw potential in renewing a post-secondary program on the campus of the defunct Sheldon Jackson College in Sitka. That institution closed in 2007, sold off much of its property to cover debts, but donated the core campus to the Sitka Fine Arts Camp. The camp has thrived since moving onto the campus, but its facilities are mostly unused in winter. Bryden Sweeney-Taylor, along with Christ Tompkins and several others, organized Outer Coast in 2015 with the objective of building a small college. It just took a while. Sweeney-Taylor is now the director of Outer Coast. We do feel like we're, we're on schedule. Um, we sort of identified early on that the notion of starting a college from scratch was not going to be something that could happen overnight and taking a step-by-step approach to that. And now with the two-year liberal arts college proper, it feels like we're in that place where we know what's working and, and that gives us the confidence to sort of take this next step. Sheldon Jackson has a complicated history. Prior to its decades as a four-year liberal arts college, it was a high school, an industrial training school, and a native boarding school. The founders of the Alaska Native Brotherhood and Sisterhood were educated there. But it also was part of a territorial educational system that stripped and suppressed indigenous culture. Matthew Spellberg believes this dark history can be reconciled by following the lead of the indigenous community as the campus moves forward into a new era for everyone. If we do this right, we will be able to bring the particular brilliance and energy that comes from thinking about an indigenous language into the sciences into our study of place and the history of Sitka and of Alaska, into our study of the humanities, into our study of great texts from whatever tradition. And hopefully it'll lead to a place where students not only get an amazing, intensive immersion in this place and the culture and tradition that is growing and evolving and has been for thousands of years in this place, but then also be able to carry that back to whatever place they're going to and apply those same principles. Outer Coast makes no secret of the inspiration for its program, Deep Springs College, which was founded in 1917 on a working cattle ranch in eastern California. Bryden Sweeney-Taylor says Deep Springs is a starting point rather than a goal for Outer Coast. At this point, I think it is sort of one of many inspirations for us uh, for what um, Outer Coast can and hopefully will become. And uh, we draw from lots of higher ed histories and traditions in thinking about what Outer Coast can be. But um, I think we've, we've been able to both broaden our perspective and to make some real decisions about the vision of Outer Coast that are significant departures from 
Deep Springs and from really any other institution that's out there. Outer Coast will admit its first freshman class in the fall of 2024, about 20 students. The following year, it will admit a similar number for a total student body of 40. If all goes according to plan, the first degrees will be awarded at commencement in the spring of 2026. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. More than 15 years after Ernestine Hayes published her memoir, Blonde Indian, it is becoming an audiobook. Hayes says she clearly remembers when the book came out that a woman in Juneau told her she couldn't read it because of her eyesight. And I always kept that at the back of my mind, that an audiobook for people who weren't able to read that size print or something like that, I would still love them to hear those stories. Hayes decided to narrate the book herself. She says that when she reads the print version of Blonde Indian, she sees so many things she'd tell her creative writing students not to do. But reading the book aloud for the recording was a different experience. I just enjoyed it and experienced all of it again. I was there with the cockroaches. I was hitchhiking on the old highway. I was on my way to Reno. It was all alive for me again. There will be a release party on Tuesday for the audiobook. Hayes and the production team will share stories and bloopers from the recording process. For Hayes, it's a way to say thank you to all the people who have supported her, especially in difficult times. The audiobook version of Blonde Indian will be available on the digital platform Patreon. And that wraps up Midday Magazine for this Wednesday, the second day of November.